0: Africa as a whole, as a continent, that's three times the size of the U.S. It produces, I guess, less than 5% of the global carbon emissions. And at the same time, it's one of the most impacted areas and regions and continents of the world.
1: Biodiversity matters because it is what makes our planet work. It allows humans to thrive. We need biodiversity for every aspect of our lives, including the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat.
0: I think it's important to emphasize interconnectedness.
1: All forms of life have a dependence on their environment for their subsistence, and humans are no different. Since our lineage first stepped out of the forest and into the savanna, and then later spread around the world, our existence has always depended on our interactions with the environment.
2: But the notion is that any tourist, any hunter, Anybody visiting that space from the outside needs to recognize that those really rich wildlife protection spaces are only being maintained at the expense of locals. You really can't pay somebody enough to lose their ancestral lands.
1: Without these cooperative relationships, conservation will not really work.
3: I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture, with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Study Center at Boston University. To collect photographs is to collect the world. These are the words of Susan Sontag in the essay On Photography. Perhaps the words apply to any number of people and places, times, and events, but they seem to hold a particular weight when thinking about the way Africa has been photographed and represented. Popular magazines have long filled their pages with photographs of safari scenes, focusing the lens on animals and landscapes, while blurring or even cropping out people. These images aren't innocuous. They create narratives and myths with one of the most deeply rooted being that all of Africa is the savannah, and its inhabitants are lions, elephants, giraffes, and gazelle roaming north to south, east to west, across the entire expanse of this continent, a continent that consists of 54 countries. So as the world confronts the realities of climate change and as conservation efforts to protect flora and fauna across Africa are implemented, in order to preserve biodiversity, these photographs are consequential. Like images of animals that come at the expense of fully seeing the diverse communities of people inhabiting Africa, there's a toll taken by conservation efforts, the manifestation of climate change, and even certain attempts to address climate change. This is a toll on the lives, livelihoods, and lifestyles of people across the African continent. Climate change is real, It is global and its impact is felt across Africa. Biodiversity suffers from climate change and the way humans interact with the environment. So what problems are there in adopting certain policies, policies that are meant to address these realities? We're going to look beyond iconic pictures of Africa in order to understand questions of climate and environmental justice. We'll think about international interventions throughout Africa the questions of power that arise through interventions designed to address climate change and conserve species and habitats. We'll think about communities and the way that some have been scapegoated while others experience vulnerability when politics, power, and policies are adopted without local input and wisdom. We'll look at examples of cooperative partnerships with communities, ones that recognize how people and biodiversity across Africa can thrive together and not at each other's expense. This will require us to ask big questions like what is climate change? What is biodiversity and why does it matter? What does conservation look like throughout Africa? Who is helped and who is harmed by certain policies? And what does it look like when people and their welfare are central to decision-making? Let's start this conversation with Rick Schroeder, a professor of geography in the Department of Anthropology at Brandeis University. Rick will start us on this exploration by introducing us to political ecology, a framework that will help us navigate all of these big questions.
0: I think the
2: key here is understanding this term political ecology. Political ecology tries to situate environmental problems in their historical and geographical context. In Africa, that means understanding both the historical impact of colonialism and some of the skewed kinds of development priorities that have been imposed in the post-colonial period by the World Bank and the IMF and ultimately by the national government. All of those things can impinge on those very localized choices. And that's the intersection of African studies, development studies, and this field where I situate myself, political ecology. So I can look at a family that herds cattle on the fringe of the Sahel in West Africa and look at the various decisions they've made to move that herd around. And I can glean a whole series of really fascinating insights into that decision-making. But unless I also understand what the national government is doing to encourage commercial agriculture in that area that actually blocks the herder from moving their cattle around and constrains their choices, unless they understand what's going on globally with climate change to change the makeup of the grasses that might be available in that area due to climate change, ecological changes, and so on. In other words, unless I can sort of take an approach that begins from the locality and then moves outward in time and space to bring in other factors that may actually help explain those choices, I haven't really come to grips with the problem at hand.
3: This intersection of ecology, politics, and social perspectives is central how we'll continue examining climate change and conservation. So let's return to Rick and deepen our understanding of what climate change is exactly. We'll also hear from Malvika Vihare, a reporter at Mangabe, an environmental science and news platform.
2: The signs of climate change in Africa are the same signs that we're seeing elsewhere in the world. So we're seeing more extreme extremes. So whether that is drought or forest fire or actually extremes on the other end of heavy rainfall events, this is consistent with the pattern elsewhere in the world. Climate change is redistribution. And you can think about that in spatial terms, right? So weather patterns shift on the landscape, different kinds of plants and animals move or occupy new spaces. But there's also economic and social redistribution that happens.
0: Climate change and its related impacts are hitting the most vulnerable sections of this continent the hardest.
2: A real kind of poignant marker of climate change in The Gambia was the death of baobab trees. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a baobab, but these are massive, massive trees I think it would take three or four of us to link arms to try and embrace the tree. They're hundreds of years old, and they've been dying off in record numbers, literally just falling apart. And this is, this is heartbreaking. These are iconic species. They've been used for a variety of purposes. Their seed pods are a great source of vitamin C. They dot the landscape. They give it a very particular character. And these things are literally falling apart because they, 100-year-old trees, can't tap the water table effectively any longer. From a political perspective, one of the issues here is that it's framed as a global problem. And what that means in practice is that global actors then feel as though they're justified in intervening elsewhere in the world when a local resource user is making a decision those choices again are constrained by the fact that other actors are brought into the question so i'll give you a concrete example there's a program that's referred to by the acronym red R E D D, and that stands for reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation And the way this works is that the United Nations and its cooperating partners make funds available to local resource users if they will protect their forests and if they will stop using them in ways that are perceived to be a form of degradation. So those funds sometimes come from a company or a corporation here in the United States or in Europe. This organization may be polluting, it may be, you know, pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and they can offset the cost of those emissions by paying somebody else in another part of the world to protect a forest. Now, that all sounds nice in principle except if it's your forest that's being targeted for protection. So that might mean that somebody in Tanzania who grows rice in a mangrove forest along the coast of the country is told that they can no longer grow rice there because they need to leave the mangrove intact because the mangrove helps stabilize the coastline that's a global imperative that's finding expression in a way that shifts the politics locally and puts the burden of climate change on someone who's not responsible for generating the problem in the first place in the broader context this is sometimes referred to as climate injustice there's a tendency for example to view problems in the Global South as being related to overuse, overgrazing, overcultivation, deforestation, and so on. And those in turn are sometimes related to the notion that there are too many people in the Global South, that it's all related in some sense to population. But that's, that's really a skewed picture of what's going on.
3: Understanding climate change and conservation is not just a simple matter of science. It requires social and political perspectives. Africa is a continent of over 1.2 billion people. So how are local communities perceived and treated in much of the policymaking around these
2: issues? Conservation means different things to different people. I think that's a a good place to start here. Whether we're talking about biodiversity per se, you know, the richness of a landscape, all of the species and all of the kind of ecosystem functions that exist in a particular place, or whether we view a particular space from a standpoint of the need to eke out a subsistence there, It becomes a productive landscape instead of viewing a space as the home of uh, an assemblage of species. You know, it's a space where you can get your firewood. It's a space where you can harvest certain grasses that you're going to use to thatch your roof. It's a space where you can hunt for meat. So all of those things tend to be criminalized by conservationists. And that's where we find a real clash um, between some of the principles of conservation and the rights of locals. The first idea is that social perspectives are crucially important to understanding climate change. We can begin with the idea of degradation and try and unpack this notion. If a forest burns, you know, the notion might be that degradation has occurred. The idea is that this is a bad thing. But I want to suggest to a social science teacher that they challenge that idea, that they don't accept the notion that degradation is self-evident, that instead they ask the question, degradation for whom? Not all forest fires represent degradation. Some are deliberately set and they're set to save labor because somebody wants to farm there. They're set to rejuvenate soil fertility. They're set to spur the growth of new grasses because somebody wants to take their cattle there to graze them. So if you begin from the assumption that forest fire represents degradation, you've missed the opportunity to understand the problem in a more nuanced way. If you begin instead from the question, what are the impacts of this particular change, who is affected and in which ways, then you arrive at a much more complex and actually accurate assessment of what that change represents on the ground.
3: The issues around policymaking bring into focus the need for climate justice. But what exactly is this? And what does it mean for conservation efforts and the attempts to address the impact of climate change?
2: Another question, just coming back to this idea of climate justice or climate injustice, there's a need to sort of unpack that idea of justice and the different kinds of considerations that might come into play here. Uh, I talked a little bit earlier about questions of distribution and redistribution. That's a very common way of understanding justice, right? So a distribution is unfair. It's unfair for somebody in the global north to be able to be consuming fossil fuels and forcing somebody else in the global south to shoulder the burden of that use, right, by being denied access to their forests. That's a distributive justice question. There's another way of looking at the question of justice, and that's simply uh, the question of recognition. So we need to recognize that local peoples have been resident on the land for many, many years. We need to recognize that they have rights of self-determination. We need to recognize that their occupancy of those lands Has led them to understand the local ecologies in ways that no outsider could ever understand them. That presents a real opportunity for co management of those resources. We need to consider the question of justice from the standpoint of decision making and what's sometimes referred to as procedural justice. So, you know, if locals have no voice, in how their their local forests, how their local waterways, how they're being managed, the likelihood is that they're going to resent the state. The likelihood is that they're going to resist efforts to manage them.
3: Let's problematize the idea of national parks as a conservation approach. Is it really as simple as a one-to-one relationship between establishing a park and protecting the biodiversity on the land? Or are matters
2: more complicated than they may first appear on the surface? Parks and protected areas are being created in spaces where locals have long-practiced livelihoods. And in fact, most of the iconic spaces throughout East Africa that have been conserved as national parks, those are all spaces that were once effectively owned and controlled by Maasai pastoralists. They've now been designated as national parks. And what that means is that if someone is caught herding their cattle in the wrong space at the wrong time, Parks Authority might seize all their cattle.
0: Since, I guess, 2003, we have sort of seen an acceleration in the creation of what are called protected areas across Madagascar. Unfortunately, what has happened in the past is that we have seen sort of a fortress model of conservation wherein the understanding is that the people are responsible for the deforestation. The people are the cause of the loss of natural resources. So these resources can be protected by keeping people out. You sort of remove them from the systems they know and understand, and then you don't provide them with alternatives. I think that's been one of the biggest failings.
3: Let's now focus on conservation efforts that are premised around local coordination and local lifestyles. In doing this, we'll focus on Madagascar, the fourth largest island in the world, and a country of nearly 27 million people. We'll continue to hear from Malvika, but we'll also hear from two scientists living and working in the Sava region of Madagascar.
4: My name is Filzons thio People call me Filzons, sometimes Thio. I'm a teacher at Cursa. Cursa is a regional center university of Sava regions here in Antalaha, northeast of Madagascar. The biodiversity is composed by animals and also by forests. As we know very well that the animals living in the forests, and the forest is giving more benefits to peoples. So protecting animals, it means protecting forests. So protecting forests, it means protecting the human in Savar regions.
0: Madagascar is a very, very rich country. And I say that because I believe biodiversity and the natural world counts as an asset for any country. And in that sense, Madagascar is one of the richest countries in the world.
3: Now let's hear from James Herrera, a researcher and program coordinator at the Duke University Lemur Center Sava Conservation Program, who's based in Madagascar.
1: Madagascar is an island off the southeast coast of Africa. It's the fourth largest island in the world and has very diverse environments. It's largely tropical with the eastern mountains covered in lush jungles. The western plains are more dry, and they've got those famous baobabs that a lot of people have probably seen. The southern arid zone is a desert that has plants that look like cactus, but they're not related to cactus at all. They're plants that are only found in Madagascar. The coasts are some of the most beautiful beaches in the world with coral reefs and famous paths where the humpback whales migrate every year. There's a couple of densely populated cities, but most people, in fact, 70% of people live in the countryside. With climate change, we're really worried about increasing frequency of natural disasters, for example, hurricanes being one of them. Well, in Madagascar, they call them cyclones. Madagascar gets about the same number of, of cyclones as Florida gets hurricanes every year. And it's because they're in this similar belt of cyclones. We have very parallel, very similar potential futures in terms of climate change. We can learn a lot from each other. We have a lot of different projects, including research on lemurs, but also people, culture, socioeconomics. For example, we're studying lemurs in their natural habitats, as well as the threats to the lemurs, including the hunting, logging, and deforestation. But we're also studying, you know, why people hunt and why people do the deforestation and ties into research on their farming practices, their health, their economics. So by taking this kind of interdisciplinary approach, we're beginning to develop an understanding of how the human and natural environments are linked in this setting. And I'd say the impetus for a lot of our research and our development projects is communicating with the local stakeholders to understand what are the challenges that they're facing and to then kind of brainstorm and co-create these action plans for how to resolve those problems. Local communities are fundamental to how we start to initiate our projects. Start at the level of a typical village on the outskirts of a rainforest. Those community members use the forest to collect wood and other materials to build and furnish their homes they use for food, for medicine, for water. They also farm, and their traditional methods include cutting and burning forests to then plant their crops. But these communities are then reporting decreasing crop yields, high levels of food insecurity, there's less and less wood to collect, fewer animals to hunt, streams are drying up. The communities are seeking assistance to develop projects that can increase their food security and sustainability. That's where DLC can come in. They have this intimate knowledge of the environment that even researchers who spend years studying these environments can't comprehend it the way that local
3: traditional knowledge can. James's work starts with lemurs, but it doesn't end there. It focuses on understanding people's lifestyles and finding alternatives that benefit them, not just wildlife.
1: Hunting is a major threat to lemurs. People hunt because they have food insecurity. And many places, wild meat is the only source of protein and iron that they can get. So we can't just say, you know, save the lemurs, no more hunting, because that would have a negative impact on the health of these communities. What can we do? Well, we co-create alternatives with the communities. So one of these alternatives is called aquaculture. And in this case, we use fish farming. By partnering with the communities and also entrepreneurs and conservationists, we facilitate training and developing the skills for communities to
3: create these sustainable fish ponds. One challenge to biodiversity is economic. In particular, the financial benefits of planting monocultures can prove troublesome, not only for the environment, but also for the people who cultivate them. Let's listen to James as he brings into focus the realities in Madagascar regarding chocolate and vanilla, grown there for consumption by the global north.
1: Practices that are common in a lot of different, let's say, subsistence cultures that are growing enough food to feed their family and maybe a little bit more to sell at markets, they already had diverse toolkits in which they could have diverse crops. And it's often because of foreign influences that they start to convert to monocultures instead of these diverse crops. Huge areas of Africa have been deforested not for subsistence and because people need to eat. It's because they're growing cacao to create chocolate for the rest of the world. Most of the world's vanilla comes from Madagascar. It is a fundamental, important cash crop. It's valued internationally and about the price of silver. For farmers in Madagascar, it is an economic boom. However, it also introduces a lot of other um, socio-cultural economic variables that are pose challenges. So we, I mentioned or alluded to monoculture. Because the vanilla can bring in so much money, farmers are investing most of their land in vanilla. And that means that if their vanilla crop doesn't produce as much as they had hoped or the price volatility is a huge issue. So if the price is not as good as it was the year before, the farmers are going to lose out. And they're doing that at the expense of growing other crops that you know maybe could have produced short-term smaller gains. People in Madagascar, they're not eating the vanilla. They're not using the vanilla. It's for sale. And it's a crucial
3: form of income that they depend on, again, at the expense of diverse crops. Let's hear from Theo again, as he describes this constellation in the Sava region of Madagascar. Climate change, biodiversity, the people who live in the Sava region, and the efforts to work with people while protecting the environment.
4: Once there is no forest, when there is the changing of the climate, the forest burns, so most of the species are gone. Mm. Most of the, the people in Sava regions have a big family. So it's not only the fathers, mothers, and uh, the son, but it's mixed up with uh, grandma and also a large family living in one room. Protecting environments is not only going to the field, to the forest, to survey the biodiversity, animals, or forests, but also to feed the people. How we can feed the people? How the people can benefit from these protections of environments? These protections of the biodiversity give income to the people.
3: Within the context of these problems associated with climate change, conservation, and the tensions that can arise when policies don't factor in or meet the needs of local people, young people are channeling their concerns and their passion. Young people are directing their energies towards climate justice. Let's turn to a youth climate change activist from Nigeria and learn about how she is bringing her skills and talents into this work.
5: My name is Olado Suadinike. I live in Abuja, Nigeria. My work in the environmental justice framework is on climate education. Why it matters for us for climate education here in the global south, especially in Nigeria, was from my experience where we had the clashes between the earthmen and the farmers. It leads to conflicts. The northeastern part of Nigeria is faced with a climate change crisis leading to desertification, deforestation, and desert encroachment. And as such, they need to look for greener pasture for their cattle. So on coming towards the north central to the greener pasture, they're intruding to the farmer's land and it becomes a big issue. And here yeah, is the need for us to educate the people because it is looking like a religious or ethnic issue. So we need to educate the people on the impact of climate change crisis or else it might lead to war, and that is why I took it upon myself after my graduation that I need to educate my people to know more about the climate change crisis. So I'm fighting for this to see that we have peace and security for regional stability, and my hope and aspiration for the future is that we build a future that is safe for all irrespective of where you are from to fight for our planet because this is the only thing that we can give to the next generation.
3: If this is what youth activism can look like when inspired, informed, and empowered young people take initiative, what can we do in our classrooms to encourage this passion and cultivate the skills needed to bring about constructive change and climate justice? Let's turn to two teachers from Brookline, Massachusetts, Brianna Brown, who teaches biology and environmental science, and Roger Grande, who teaches social justice and world history. Brianna and Roger bring the study of climate change into classrooms in an interdisciplinary way, connecting science to civics and social studies to environmentalism.
6: Climate change is really sort of the existential crisis of our time.
7: The idea that the science teachers are going to carry the load when addressing climate change is really a wrong proposition. Social studies should be bearing perhaps the lion's share of addressing climate change given the multi-dimensional nature of what climate change is really about. To leave social studies out of that curriculum is just doing a dramatic and huge disservice to young people. The course is aimed at giving students a solid science understanding, a science literacy or climate literacy, I should say, when it comes to addressing just sort of the causes and outcomes from a scientific perspective on climate change, and then providing students with deep insights into what are the uh, social, political, economic dimensions of climate change. We also want to provide students with a sense of empowerment and give them some skills and tools in climate change communication and give them a a sense of how to become uh, more of an activist Perhaps the most important thing that we should really be addressing is the notion of democracy. And, you know, we shouldn't reach only into history when we're talking about democracy. We need democracy to address climate change. We need it because we need to have a system that people believe in and can embrace what are established and known things. One of the huge gaps in the discipline of social studies is that we teach about engagement, we teach about citizenship, and we teach about activism, but we don't typically make a lab-based class where we actually provide the tools for how to do that. We forget that it is a skill and not just a topic.
6: Everyone needs to be prepared to vote for people who will work on solutions to this issue. They also need to be taught about individual responsibility and individual actions that they can take and how to advocate for change this generation of students they're going to start to see maybe some of the worst of climate change in their lifetimes and they need to be ready to make those hard decisions and to support people who might be affected negatively by those hard decisions
3: with all of this in mind what does it look like to actually teach about and to teach for environmental justice
6: with many issues we talk about environmental justice and sort of the the NIMBY aspect the not in my backyard aspect of damaging activities to the environment. And climate justice sort of stems from that, where in many places in our country and in the world, it's the people who are less affluent and and who had less of a hand in causing the climate crisis who will be affected first. So we talk about the disparity between the ones who've really created the problem and the ones who are going to suffer the consequences first. When we do our climate change unit before population, I have them do a carbon footprint activity where for a week they track their energy use, their food consumption. They collect data on their household energy use and they log their travel and so on. At the end of that week, we tally everything up and they get a carbon footprint for the year. And then part of that assignment is to come up with some personal actions that they can do to reduce their carbon footprint. And then we put those footprints up in the classroom. They're actually colored in like graphs and they have their sort of pledges to try and do some actions. And I just remind them when we get to this point in our population unit that There are things that they can do to lessen their impact, and they have the tools to do that. We are getting to a critical point where we have to think long-term rather than the short-term needs. And I stress to students that in any kind of environmental action or conservation action, whoever's in charge needs to think about all the stakeholders. And if there's a group of people who are being displaced, for example, or economically challenged by a conservation or environmental action, that it's the responsibility of the community and the government to help resettle those people or retrain them for other jobs.
3: Susan Sontag told us that collecting pictures is collecting the world. We've collected a very different picture of Africa and the world of politics, people, power, and priorities regarding climate change and conservation efforts. This is a picture that shows tensions and struggles, not only to address the impact of climate change and to protect biodiversity, but also to empower local communities and factor their lifestyles and needs into decision-making and practices so that the natural world and human societies can thrive together. This is no small feat. Addressing the toll taken on the climate by the way humans consume resources and contribute to climate change especially when behaviors in the Global North take on local solutions in Africa and throughout the Global South. As teachers strive to make their students globally mindful, climate change is one crucial example of the consequences of interconnectedness, consequences that are disproportionately felt in the Global South. So the next time we open a magazine and see an iconic image of the Savannah, let's make sure to ask our students the hard but necessary questions. What does that image fail to capture? What questions of justice exist just outside the frame? And where are we, us and our students, located in relationship to this image? That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition, is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and our other resources further, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Studies Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu/africa. And to learn more about the center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program. Visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks again for listening.